Now, in the read Luke chapter 19, which is the story of Zacchaeus. Um, who wants to read it? Cindy, would you like to read it? Believe it or not, Cindy is supposed to have an Australian accent, but I think the Mihail and one thing or another is not too out of there. The end of Jericho was passing through, and Jesus saw him. in Zacchaeus. Why have we got all these stories about these apparently random people? Well, they're not random people because these people are put into the Bible so that we can actually identify with them. So, there's a man named Zacchaeus who was a chief tax collector and rich. Well, Zacchaeus, he was a Jew, it's a Jewish name. But he was a tax collector. And what happened was that Israel, or Palestine, was under the control of the Romans. And they taxed the Jewish people really awfully. 60% tax or more. If you drew 10 potatoes, well, there were no potatoes, but you know, you had to give six to the Romans. And the guys who made sure you did that were the tax collectors. So if you were a Jew and you were a tax collector, you are a betrayer of your people. You're working for the enemy. You're working for the colonialists and pretty nasty ones. So they didn't like tax collectors. Jewish people hated tax collectors because they were their own Jewish people who were collaborating with the Romans and themselves were getting very rich, obviously. And this guy was the chief tax collector. He was a big guy. So... He was out of society. People didn't like him. In the last chapter, Luke 18, Jesus has explained that it's really hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And he says that so many times. He says, for example, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom. Now, they start walls around the cities in those days and there was this big gate where the camel could go through with all its goods on its humps and there was the needle gate that was just big enough for a man to go through. If a camel wanted to go through the needle gate, it had to get down on its knees, have all its goods taken off it and even then it could only just squeeze through. No, no surprise that Christianity does not make you rich. It's no surprise if God doesn't give most 
Alinda's wealth. Let's give some. This guy was a rich man. And so Jesus has said many times, it's really hard for a rich man to get into the kingdom. And here you have an example of a rich man who does get there. So I think it's an example of where some people are in a really hard position to get saved, but he will work with them to get them, as it were, through the legal gate. But because it was like that, living in a poor country, I mean, Palestine was poor. It was one of the poorest parts of the Roman Empire. This was not Rome. This was not Italy. This was the total back end of the empire. And he's rich. Most people are dirt poor. People are not having enough food to eat, basic stuff like that. And he's wealthy. Wealth isolates. So he would have been isolated from the rest of his people. And they thought, well, you're chief tax collector. You're in with the enemy. You're a bad guy anyway, we don't like you. But he was seeking to see who Jesus was. He was seeking Jesus. It's not surprising that someone who's right out on their own actually gets attracted to Jesus. He's seeking Jesus. And how does the story finish? The Son of Man came to seek and save that which was lost, the last verse. So the whole mission of Jesus is he came to seek people, but Zacchaeus was seeking Jesus. So you see how there's a mutuality. That is, Zacchaeus is seeking Jesus, but Jesus is seeking him, and they meet. And this is a great thing, that God is in search of man. God is looking for people. He says to Jeremiah, around the streets of Jerusalem, searching squares in the city to see if you can find anyone who's got a heart for me. And Jeremiah at that point was reflecting God searching for people. So it is not that God sort of says, well, if you're searching for me, here I am, well done, you found me. He is more proactive. He's looking for you. And for every single one of us here, he was looking for us. So for example, when someone gets baptized, that person's been seeking for God, Jesus, they've been looking for them and they met. And that's why we're told that all the angels in heaven rejoice. Heaven is like electric. When you're searching for God, he's searching for you and you meet. So, yeah, beyond the sort of steely silence of the skies, as it seems, there is God and a God who is searching and looking for people, for us. And we're looking for him, but he's looking for us. And we meet. So old Yiddish proverb says, I'm going out to find him, I met him coming to the water. Now, when I talk about mutual relationship, can you imagine a young couple starting to fall in love, you know, and they go out for a coffee, and, um, oh, they're chatting, they say, oh, well, it's, um, it's my mum's birthday coming up tomorrow, 6th of January. And the, bloke, the guy's like, your mum's born the 6th of January? So is my mum. And then you go on, and they're chit-chatting this young couple, and, uh, well, then there's something, there's, there's something else. Like, oh, you know, uh, my dad died, um, actually, two years ago to the day, yesterday. So did I. And then the hands start coming out across the table, and holding hands, oh, wow. You know? This is mutuality. 
right? And this is how it is between God and man. And you might think, but well, he's not there, right down here. But there is that. We are searching for him, but he's searching for us. That is the in loveness that you fancy me. I remember taking Cindy out for the first coffee. <laughs> <laughs> and I've been looking at her and, and, and all sorts of schemes and plans. And honestly, it blew my mind that bad. She could have like, had the eyes for me as well. I thought, oh no, sure not. And you see, <laughs> you see, that's how it is. And that is how it is between God and man. And it sounds incredible that it could be like that. But see, when we say Jesus is real, He is real. And this is how it is. Zacchaeus was searching for Jesus, and the story ends with Jesus saying, You know what, the Son of Man came to seek to search for us. So, it's amazing, really. He was seeking to see who Jesus was, but because of the crowd, he could not, because he was small in stature. He couldn't see Jesus because the crowd was in the way. And so he runs ahead and climbs up the sycamore fig tree so you can have a bird's eye view of Jesus going past. The crowd stopped him when he got round the crowd. Luke, who's writing this gospel, was a doctor. Paul calls him the beloved physician. He was a physician, he was a doctor. So the guy was some sort of a psychologist and in those days probably doctors were more if you were a doctor, you probably had to be a psychologist, I should think. They didn't obviously know all the stuff that we know now. So, the crowd were blocking this guy from seeing Jesus. And Luke has recorded a number of incidents like that before. For example, there was a man who was paralyzed and he desperately wants to get to Jesus. Jesus is in a house, but the crowd is, has filled the house and the crowd is already blocking the entrance. How can I get to Jesus? The crowd's in the way. And so he gets round and I get his mates to carry him up on the roof and they unpack the, the flat roof and let him down. Other examples. There's a blind man who starts screaming, Jesus, Jesus, have mercy on me, son of David. As Jesus is walking down the street. And the crowd come to him and say, shush, shush, be quiet. Stay here. You're an invalid, you're blind, you can stay here. The crowd comes between Jesus and the man, but the man pushes past them. The women bring their little kids to Jesus, and the crowd of disciples say, oh, don't bother Jesus with the kids, take those kids away. Jesus says, no, suffer the little children who come to you. So you have developing there a theme that the crowd gets in the way of the individual who wants to come to Jesus. Now who was this crowd? Well we're talking about Palestine in the first century. These guys are all Jews. They are all the people of God as the Jewish people were at that time. So it's as if the, the mass of people the mass of religious people gets in the way. But the person who really wants to find Jesus gets around and so I'm not against church at all, but you see, church can very often, for many people, be a barrier between God and man. Not intentionally, but that is how it works out. And so for Zacchaeus, this mass of religious people, 
who, who didn't think much of him, and he's got to get round it. And that is actually how it is. To come to Jesus, you've got to get round other people's opinion, other people's whatever. That's why we start church in a pub and people come. You know, but not the standard folks, they will do the crowd. They, they want to go with it, whatever. Now, it says he was little of stature, small of stature. Now, you know the New Testament is written in Greek. We're reading English translation here. That phrase, small of stature, what it literally means is a dwarf. He actually had dwarfism. So he was a dwarf. When you think about it, that would make sense because right, there's a crowd of people and he's so little that he can't, he can't see Jesus. Yes, yeah, because he's a dwarf. Now, so that the Greek behind that, as a translation, small stature, means a dwarf. Means a dwarf. And that makes sense of the way he climbs up the sycamore fig tree. Not a sycamore tree, which can be in this country fairly big, but a sycamore fig tree. Now a fig tree is those, what they're calling their sycamore fig tree, is not very big and strong. And those miserable people who love to criticise the Bible, so uh, uh, it says here that a guy climbed up a climbed up a, a sycamore fig tree. They're they're not much more than a big bush. How could a guy do that? Correct. How could a guy do that? But a dwarf or a child could, and that makes sense. So it all fits in, you see. So he's got dwarfism, and he gets round it. He climbs up this fairly small tree that could just about hold the child of a dwarf. Now in those days, anyone who had some visible disability was thought to be very weird, very odd, your parents must have sinned, you have sinned, you are demon possessed, you are weird. Now in our society that is not now the case, fortunately. Disability is not seen in that sort of way, but it certainly was then. And don't forget, here in Europe, we have a country called Albania. And that only became free of, of uh, a very harsh form of communism in about 1991. Until 1991 in Albania, if you were left-handed, you couldn't work for the government. You couldn't go to university, you couldn't do anything if you're left-handed. So, in a lot of parts of Africa that I was in, in villages, and I'm sure it's the same in Asia. There is to this day also that sort of sense. So if you've got something visibly different and wrong about you, then you are, well, something to be avoided. Certainly, you are, you are not to get married to my daughter. That would have been the attitude. So, was this guy single? Probably. Probably single. And then the Jews didn't allow people with such visible disabilities to enter the temple. You see, in the law of Moses, there was a law that said, if you're a priest, you must not, not have a disability if you're going to be a priest. But the Jews, what they did, they put what they call a fence around the law. They said, okay, so what the law says is, if you've got a disability, you can't be a priest. 
Let's go further. Let's say if you've got any physical deformity, you can't even come into the temple, wherever you are. So, this guy who was a dwarf would not be allowed into the temple. So he was outside of religion. He couldn't go into the temple. So, and he was not seen, you know, as a great guy, if I kept away from him. You see how the Bible psychologically is so credible. It is psychologically credible that a guy in that position, yeah, he'd start working for the moment. Because a lot of people don't want it too much. Yeah, that's already. So. Yeah, right. So, people say the Bible's not true. The more you read the Bible, you, you get it. That whole thing fits in beautifully. And this example, this story is a great example of that. Yeah, that would be about right, that he would be like that. And of course, because he ended up the chief tax collector, he ended up really wealthy. And what can your wealth do for you? I mean, relationships are more, are more valuable than money, right? What a miserable life. Everyone hates you. You've got plenty of money. You're thought to be a weirdo. You feel a weirdo. You know you're not. But you'd love to come to God, but you can't get in the temple. You want to see Jesus, but there's a huge crowd, and you're too little. You see, that guy is like a lot of people, in fact, like all of us. Of that, life has put us, for one reason or another, in a place where it is me, myself, and I. And I want to come to Jesus. There may be stuff in the past, in the present, and what inevitably is going to be in the future. That means that people do not understand you. There is no point sitting with them in a pub for five hours trying to explain yourself to them. They will not get it. And that's it. Or they have got their worldview on you, and you're not going to change that. So it is. And you think, well, poor me. But there was something about Jesus where this Zacchaeus intuitively felt, yeah, this is the one. Somehow, he, I believe, somehow has got a special interest in me. And so, he climbs up the sycamore fig tree, and, of course, he thinks I'm very cleverly hidden behind the leaves, and Jesus isn't going to see me. And Jesus walks along, looks up, Zacchaeus, he says his name. Well, I'm sure that Jesus didn't know Zacchaeus at all. And yet he, I mean physically, they haven't sort of bumped into each other uh, before, but he knows Zacchaeus' name because, of course, it was in God's plan to call Zacchaeus. And Zacchaeus would have been like, wow, he knows my name. How do you know my name? In the, Hebrew, and you've got to remember that the Bible is a Hebrew book, and we are looking at it through the lens of, let's say, Anglo-Saxon culture, English language, and so forth. In Hebrew, for a name, it sums up who you are, your history, your personality. Your name is not just an identifier. Your name is you. It sums you up. In fact, in the old England, it was sort of a bit the same. John Smith, why was he called Smith? Tony Thatcher. Margaret Thatcher. 
Um, what, what, why are you called a Thatcher? Well, because you were, you, you were Thatcher, right? John Smith, because you were Smith. And so forth. So you got the name that went with what you did, went with you. So it was. Johnny Walker. <laughs> he was not Johnny, he was known for walking. And so on. Right? And so with God, He knows our name. He really knows our name. And He, in that sense, knows everything about you. Knows how you smell, knows the ins and outs of your mind, of your personality, your character, what you've done with your life, the essential you. And in that sense, He knows your name. There's no one say, oh, Duncan, uh, God knows my name, Duncan. Well, he probably knows a lot of people also have done. But the point is, he has a name for us, which us. That sums us up uniquely. And Jesus says that our names are written in the book of life, but for some people, he will blot their name out of the book. So, I don't suppose God has a literal book up in heaven and a pencil and a rubber, I don't suppose. But the idea is that he knows us, knows you. The sum total of your life, of your character, your personality, your life's work, your life's being. And he has that written down. And that's why it says at the day of judgment, when Jesus comes back, the books will be opened. And we will be judged according to what's written in the books. Because your name will sum you up. So when Jesus says, Zacchaeus, yeah, he knew him right from the beginning, because God foreknew him right from the, the beginning of the world. So you can see how it is that we are known to God, not simply as a name, Duncan, what does that mean, whatever it means, but you are known, and that is a huge comfort. Because actually we also have the t-shirt on that says, please understand me. Now, I want to be understood. I want to understand me. But getting understood is very difficult. But there is somebody who understands. Please understand me. You know, that's, that's it. And there is someone. You know, we make people think, oh yeah, she understands me. He understands me. No. Oh, nah. nah. um, but no. Jesus does and God does. Absolutely. Seven, we are known by name. We are personally known, and salvation will be personal. It's not that we're just going to go on living as some sort of, I don't know, flap of spirit in the ether kind of thing. Salvation is personal. You personally will be saved. I personally will be saved. And who am I? Who are you? You are the sum of all your experiences in life. How you were brought up, how you went to school, how you were schooled, how you were raised, how you worked, the relationships that you had, the things you did in your life, ended up creating you as a person. And you will be there. Jesus says, you will see, you will recognize Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of God. We will recognize each other. And that is a wonderful thing, especially when it comes to folks dying who are believers. That well, we shall see each other again. And we shall live together forever. And it happens. One by one, we shall all, the inevitable shall happen to us all. That is how it is. But, 
before in Christ, we've been baptized into His death and His resurrection, we will be resurrected. And you know, not just living as a fluff of something abstract in the ether somewhere, but actual real people. And we will have real relationships with each other forever. And you see why I would do anything to baptize anybody. If you connect with his death and his resurrection and his life, then you will live forever. And that, of course, affects the quality of our relationships now. Why this week did I go out, Cindy and I go out for a coffee with uh, Karen and have a coffee with uh, Joanne? Well, not because we're going to be together forever. That's the sense of a family, of the eternal family. That's going to go on forever. That's the thing. So, he knew Zacchaeus' name. And he said to him, Zacchaeus, quickly, come down. Make haste, come down. And he made haste and came down and received him joyfully. Quick speed of response. And that's quite a theme in all the gospel records. And by the way, to be a Christian means that we are focused on Jesus. And we read and reread the gospel records. It is not simply a cultural thing to wear a cross and go to church. I mean, that is, of course, good. But read and reread the Gospels because there you will meet out of those, that, if you like, black print or white paper, you will meet a living person. It becomes a living word. And the Lord Jesus becomes the word made flesh. There in the Gospels, you will meet him. So, so as you um, read and reread the Gospels, you get this theme of immediate response. For example, Jesus calls the disciples while they're fishing, while Andrew and Peter are throwing a net into the sea. He says, hey, come follow me. And let the net drop, and they come immediately. They make haste. So many of the people who he calls to him, they make haste, it says, and come to him. It's like with the children. Yes, straight away. That's, that's what you want. That's a theory. That's the idea. Yes, straight away. And uh, he has God's children. And that's what he wants. Yes, straight away. And that's why people got baptized immediately in the first century. There's Peter preaching the gospel, and they said, what should we do? He said, repent and be baptized. Now they were in the middle of Jerusalem. Okay, 3,000 people. Let's do it. By the way. They do it. Just, just like that. Or the, Philipp- the uh, prison keeper in Philippi. It's an earthquake. It's the middle of the night. And he gets convicted by Paul's preaching. Okay, fine. What must I do? Get baptized. Okay, fine. Gets baptized in the middle of the night with the earthquake going on and the prison in ruins and so on. So, yes, straight away. That's the, uh, that's the attitude we've got to have. And he receives him into his house joyfully. And Jesus says, The Son of Man came to seek and save that which was lost. Remember the parable of the, the good shepherd. He goes out to seek and save the lost sheep. He puts it on his shoulder, rejoicing. Jesus rejoices when he finds the lost, as you see from the parable of the lost sheep. He came, the son of man came to seek and save that which was lost. 
So Jesus has sought, he's been looking for Zacchaeus, he's found him. He is, Jesus is joyful, but Zacchaeus is joyful as well. Going back to the young couple going out for the first coffee, you know, sweet 16 or 18 or whatever it is, that mutuality. She's happy, he's happy. And you see, this is how it is between Jesus and us. You see, Jesus is real. He's actually real. Where two or three gather together, there am I in the midst of He is real. Absolutely, utterly real. And he is in relationship with you and me. And there is that, wow, you feel the same way about me as I do about you. Wow, that's what binds you together. That's a spark. That's a spark. And there is that spark between Jesus and us. Now, unlike in human relationships where there may be that spark, uh, but then, you know, it sort of uh, becomes mundane and gets stuck in the mire of uh, mediocrity and so forth. In our relationship with him, this does not happen. That spark starts a fire. That keeps burning. So, he goes to the lodge with him to stay with him, have a meal with him. And the people don't like it. They say, oh, you don't realize he's gone, he's gone to him and he's in the house of the guy who's a sinner. Well, in their culture, you have to be very careful about entering a property because it showed that I accept you. That's why the story of Cornelius, if you remember, well, Peter doesn't want to enter the property of the Gentile. He's not supposed to. Who you eat your food with is very important. For us, it's pretty random. We sit at tables. And I don't care who's sitting next to me, it doesn't bother me. But for them in their culture to sit at the same table, to share my table with you, uh, means that I accept you, that I think you're okay. Now for us it's not an issue. But to this day in the Middle East, in their culture that is an issue, it matters. You know, if you had a lot of Middle Eastern peasants, let's say, come into, well, we got four tables. Oh, it becomes a very big issue. How do I know you? What's she like? Is who the right? Yeah, it becomes a big thing for them. For us, it's not even there. But for, for them, it was a big thing. And so they were disgusted that Jesus would enter the house of the sinner and eat with him. They said that to Jesus before, and they say to Jesus, why do you, well, why do you eat with prostitutes and tax collectors? And he said, because I'm a doctor and I came to call the sick to repentance. It's as if he says, I've accepted you as you are. I'll sit on the same table with you. So that you might repent. It's not as if he says, well, here's the bar, and if you jump over that, if you jump over, jump over the bar, then I'm there for you. So I will break my bread with you, I will fellowship with you, I'll sit at your table right now. And that unconditional acceptance of you will elicit from you a change. And that's what's happening here. That he goes into this apparently random bloke's house. Well obviously he's a sinner because he, you know, he's a tax collector and took people off now. Okay. And Zacchaeus stood and said to him, Lord, half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I wrongfully accepted something from anyone I was still forefathered. So he's saying, I'm giving it away. 
I guess he didn't have a great life anyway. Again, it's sort of psychologically credible. I guess he has no family as he's a dwarf. He's got all this money, but no relationships. So, oh, but he says, if I basically stole anything from anyone, I'll give you back four times. Remember, they were living under the law of Moses. And the law of Moses said, if you steal something from anybody, and you're caught, you must give it back to them, plus one-fifth. Plus one-fifth, which is not an awful lot, really. Um, if you steal five pound or somebody, you've got to give them five pound back plus one pound. No, it's not a huge uh, punishment. But it says, if I stole anything from you, I'll give it back fourfold. If I, well, I stole five off you, I'll give you twenty. You see how the law of Moses said, oh, you've only got to give it back plus a fifth. He, he goes further than that. And this is the idea of God's law. God's law is not a chain. It's like a leash. That, you know, because man is not a dog. That's on a leash to God. That, you know how a dog is when it's on a leash. Imagine the dog's outside the pub. He's on a leash, he's on a chain, and his owner's in the pub drinking. And he wants to get away, and he's pulling, but he's limited by this leash that he's got, this chain that he's got. Now, the law of God is not a chain, it's not a leash. And you see the law of God saying, if you steal anything, give it back plus a fifth. And he takes that as a springboard. Okay, I'll give it back plus uh, four times over. You don't have to do that. So what a contrast to the Jews who said, uh, okay, so the law says that if, if you're uh, a priest that has got disability, a deformity, can't work as a priest in the temple. Ooh, they take that, put a hedge around the law, say, well, like, Nobody who's got a deformity can come into the temple. You can't be religious at all. So you see how he's using the law properly. And Jesus says, salvation has come to this house because he is a son of Abraham. Now, Paul in Galatians 3 says, as many of you as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ, and if you are Christ's, then are you the seed of Abraham? And heirs according to the promises, the promises God made to Abraham of eternal inheritance of this earth, of eternal life here on this earth. This world is ours, that's what God promised it to, to Abraham. That becomes ours if we are baptized. So, he says, the Son of Man came to seek and to save that which was lost. If you want to select it, yeah. mental, does that apply? Does that's a good point. The priest, maybe sort of a formative, disability formative. Yeah. If you're dyslexic, whatever you call it, slow learning, does that apply? No, I'm, saying, I'm saying that's what it was under the law of Moses. That's not, not under Jesus, no. This is the whole point. Yeah. Um, so, this guy, who was a dwarf, is totally saved. And Jesus says the Son of Man came to seek and save that which is lost. He came to seek, but Zacchaeus was seeking for him. Now, we are born, I think, with a hole in the heart that only God and Jesus can fill. We are born seeking him. We're looking for the Father. We're looking for the Father that we, we haven't previously found. It's like you heard of the Lost Generation, the Aboriginals in Australia. A lot of research done on that. 
British years ago, did a cruel experiment, just dragged uh, a lot of Aboriginal kids away from their parents, and put them in care homes and all that sort of thing, and just to do psychological experiments on them, just to see how they would react. This is way back in the early days in Australia. And uh, then later on, that generation who had been taken away from their biological parents started looking for their parents. They started looking for their true parents. And you can read these stories, um, this is in Australia, of how intuitively a guy said, that's my father. Uh, yeah, this feels like my son. There's intuition there. There's a lot of research done on that. And how all that generation, while they're taken away from their biological parents, searched for their father. And you see, that is similar to us. That we have a, a thing in us that searches for him. And it is those who say, I'm not interested in God. They're just blotting that out. They're pretending that's not interesting to them. It would be like one of those Aboriginal folks say, oh, I couldn't care less about finding my father. Uh, there's a lot going to do it. We, we'd like you to look to this gentleman who uh, believes he's your father. What are you going to do is say, I'm uh, not interested. You might do, for various reasons, but normally you wouldn't. And so it is with us. Everybody has got a heart for God. Everyone is searching for him. <laughs> the glorious good news is that he is searching for us. And it is like the young, naive, 16-year-old couple sitting up in a cafe and just got my own hands for the first time with that, <clears throat> that boss. Oh, well, you feel the same way about me as I do about you. This is how it is. The, the, the thing is that God feels and Jesus feels even more strongly for us than we do about him. And of course you, you see this above all in the fact that the Lord Jesus died for us while we were yet sinners. God commends his love to us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. He took the initiative in doing this. He died for us before we even existed, before we could even show any interest to show us that I really do love you. And it's for us to respond. Get baptized and do it today as far as I'm concerned. If you haven't been baptized, if you have been baptized, take it seriously that he is on your he's got a number for you. He knew your name from the beginning, right? Jesus looks up and says, Zacchaeus? Ah, he knows my name. You know me? That's my name. Man is not alone. You, know? you are not alone. I am not alone in this world. But we are known by God. We really are. He knows us better than we know ourselves in totality. He's written our biography. He knows it. So let's uh, let's remember Jesus now with the uh, the bread and the uh, and the cup. The bread representing his body and the cup representing his blood. Let's give thanks to the bread. Uh, Kevin, would you like to give a little prayer of thanks to the bread?
The cup, the cup represents his, his blood, his life that was given to us. And as I say, no man has made a lot better than that a man laid down his life for his friends. That he did this to really flag our attention, that I do love you unto death. Okay, so let's give, um, let's give thanks for the cup. Lord God, our Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this symbol of your love and the love of your Son and his giving of his life for me. We pray that each of us might truly believe that the Son of God loved me and gave himself for me for his sake. Amen. Let's give, um, let's give thanks to the food. Would someone like to say a prayer of thanks to the food? Let's have some new voices, not just me and Kevin and Cindy. Yeah. 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 They've done all of us. Amen. Let's go.